Glad to have you back for another episode of the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. And while this podcast is about planning for retirement, especially the non-financial aspects of it, it's also about how to live life to the fullest. And the key is you don't need to wait until you retire to do so. One topic that all of my clients in one way or another are thinking about is, how do I achieve the good life? What is the good life? And what do I need to do to prepare myself for living it once I get the freedom of retirement? And there's no shortage of opinions and resources on that topic, the latest and greatest. But every once in a while, I like to step back and get a different perspective. The last couple of years, I've read a few different books on ancient philosophy. One by Edith Hall, Aristotle's Way, and another by William Irvine, The Stoic Challenge, stood out. But recently, I came across a new book that I think you'll be interested in and applies to thinking about getting ready for retirement and living life better today. The book is Living for Pleasure, An Epicurean Guide to Life by Emily Austin. Our guest joining us today is Emily Austin. She's a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Her scholarly work focuses on ancient Greek theories of complex emotions. She grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and earned her doctorate from Washington University in St. Louis in 2009. And in her book, Living for Pleasure, an Epicurean Guide to Life, she offers a lively, jargon-free tour of Epicurean strategies for diminishing anxiety, achieving satisfaction, and relishing joy. Emily, thanks for making the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you note in your book that you're a scholar, not a life coach. But how can ancient philosophy help people live better lives today? Yeah, thanks. I think so the point about not being a life coach, that's actually, in some sense, an outgrowth of Epicureanism itself. So Epicureanism was very egalitarian. And Epicurus thought that uh, what we're doing is we're trying to figure these things out together. So even you know some of his detractors make a point of saying that Epicureanism wasn't like a classroom or a school where Epicurus just said, hey, here's how it is. You, you do it together. And and I think that there's a sense in which, you know, I don't want to say, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> I do know Epicureanism really well and because I get paid to do it. But I don't think that I, you know, I don't have a big platform of followers. I'm not a therapist. I'm, you know, I'm just kind of mucking about with everyone else. And so I wanted to make it clear at the beginning that that's true. But obviously, I chose to write the book because I think ancient philosophy has stuff to offer people. And I think Epicureanism in particular hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, and it has a lot going for it. But one of the things about ancient Greek philosophy is the reason people go back to it is that their central question was happiness. What is the good life? And Epicurus himself said, you know, philosophy is worthless unless it helps people live a good life. All this other stuff is useless unless it quiets the mind. And so it's a timeless question and they have timeless answers. And sometimes it's just comforting to know that the answers are old. But they were also very countercultural. They really like to shake things up. These were not, ancient Greek philosophers were not just your normal people. They asked and challenged people. And I think even if you end up deciding, oh, this isn't for me, they're asking such important questions about living that you have to figure out the answers. And so I think people you know, they're challenging the standard narratives and people need that. They need to be kind of shaken up, even if they think, oh, that's not for me. So what's the brief background on Epicurus and the essence of his life philosophy? 
Yeah, so Epicurus was technically an Athenian citizen by birth, but he grew up on an island that's just off the coast of Turkey, Samos. And he went back to Athens to serve in the military because that was his obligation. And then he he couldn't go back to Samos, so he lived in what's now Turkey for a while, but then went back to Athens to start sort of set up his philosophical shop. And he did that at a place called the Garden on the outskirts of town. So he lived and philosophized with his friends there. He also owned a house in town. So he wasn't, you know, just like a suburban (laughs) dropout. But so he set up this garden and that would have been at pretty much exactly the same time as Zeno of Kittium founded Stoicism. So they were head-to-head rivals, peers. They, They knew each other. And Athens at the time was pretty pretty rocky place to be. And so some people think that these schools were built to kind of help people be resilient to face life in uncertainty. And so both Epicureanism and Stoicism were trying to do that. But Epicureanism took the approach that we're animals. And like other animals, we make sense of the world through our senses and through pleasure and pain. And so he was a hedonist, not in this kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll sense of hedonism, but in the sense that what we want is to feel secure, but we don't just want to feel secure. We want joy and we want tranquility. And that if we front load pleasure, then we'll find that that's kind of what makes our lives good. And we're doing wrong is pursuing pleasure incorrectly. It's not pleasure's fault. <laughs> it's our fault. And so what he wants to do is say, okay, look, I can help you think about pleasure because that's when you think about your life, that's what you think about what's made it good. So he was a hedonist, but a special kind of souped up prudential hedonist. Yes. Great to hear. So many people listening are working toward their version of the good life after they graduate from the world of full-time work. What would he say the key building blocks are of a good life? Yeah. So one of the things I really like about your podcast, because, you know, as academics, we don't get a lot of opportunities to think about retirement. I know people who say, I'll die in the classroom. and. Lots of people in my generation think, will I ever have money to retire? But one of the things I like is that obviously happiness is not just about money and and neither is retirement. So so one of the things I like about your podcast is that you, you focus on all the other things that make life good that people want more of in retirement. But it's not just, they're not just for retirement, they're for now. And so Epicurus says, you know, if you can't manage the free time you have now and find joy in it, then how are you going to do it when you have more? And, you know, Epicurus is, he's often associated with this phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And though he never said that, he does say, you know, why delay joy? We only get one life. And so even if you don't have a lot of time for joy now, it's really important to pursue it now and to get good at it, whether that's in very small, amounts of time or or larger amounts of time. I think some Epicureans might be those people who kind of take their retirement as they go in a certain way. And that has a little bit to do with what they take to be the good life. And they do think that a lot of the joy we find is in simple things, in everyday activities, in being with one another. And it doesn't take anything flashy or excellent. It doesn't, it doesn't really cost a lot of money. And so I think he would focus on joy now. practicing living well now, don't delay it because we only have one life. But he also is a big fan of prudence and long-term planning. (laughs) So I think that he actually is kind of an ideal philosopher for thinking about how to live well now and live well in the future. He was ahead of his time. 
he was ahead of his time. I, I mean, one thing that he was really ahead of his time on is his science, <laughs> but this isn't a podcast about science, so I won't go there. So what did he consider to be the greatest pleasure and what gets in the way of it? Yeah, so there's a sense in antiquity, Epicurus got characterized or caricatured as this kind of rampant hedonist, you know, sort of the guy who would throw a frat party every night or something. And he he was upset that he was being mischaracterized that way at the time. Um, so it's very longstanding mischaracterization. But I think people overcompensate or overcorrect in trying to fix that. So they say, oh, no, he was just about limiting pain. And he was all about tranquility. And he didn't care about pleasure. It was just about getting rid of anxiety. And it's actually truly something more in the middle. So he thinks that in order to really experience joy, we need a kind of bedrock tranquility, a kind of security. And, and that security includes kind of material security. So unlike his competitors, the Stoics, he thought, no, we really do need money and food and, and friends, and we need an understanding of the world. And so there are these things we need, and that gives us this bedrock security. It's kind of a, a starting base for the other things. And we often get distracted from meeting those needs, and that's the source of a lot of our anxiety. And once we have those needs met and we have them meet, met confidently, then we can pursue all of these other assorted joys that give our lives meaning, and those joys won't give us anxiety. So in some sense, he is he thinks you should clear out the background noise of anxiety and you get a kind of tranquility, but that tranquility opens up all of these opportunities for joy. So start with the tranquility and then pursue the things that give you life satisfaction and memories and things like that. But the main thing that gets in our way is anxiety. And the source of anxiety for him is our desires. And desires is the key from your book, Living with Pleasure and Epicurean Guide to Life. I got the sense that prudence was a key element, as you mentioned, in his philosophy. How did he think about desire and the different types of desires? Yeah, so he had a, a kind of taxonomy of desires, a division of desires. And and the division is really central to thinking about how we combat anxiety and pursue pleasure. And he had, unfortunately, some very cumbersome names for these three kinds of desires. So they're the natural and necessary, the natural and unnecessary, and the unnatural and unnecessary. And that's a lot to say and a lot to write. And so in the book, I call them the necessary desires, the extravagant desires, and corrosive desires. And the necessary desires are those desires that you need to meet to feel confident about your security. And that's not just food and water and shelter, but the other sorts of things that you that help fight off sort of uh, worry. And, and so one of the focal parts for Epicureanism is friendship, right? So friends are a great source of joy, but also they're there when you need them, right? So they make you feel more secure. And so does an understanding of the world. So if the world really confuses you or you can't make sense of it, then that's a source of anxiety. And so he has a much bigger class of necessary desires than you might think. It's not just food and water. It's it's friends and an understanding of the world. And he thinks we need to prioritize those. And if we do, then we've got that base, right? And that's really all we need. But life is filled with all sorts of other choices. And so he also has this class of extravagant desires. And those are for sort of nicer versions of the necessary desires. And it's totally okay to desire those as long as they don't cause us a lot of anxiety or pull us away from the necessary desire. So for instance, if you thought, look, I need to go to Greece at the same time that my mother is very sick or my friends need me, 
then you're sacrificing these necessary things for extravagances. And so he thinks extravagances are the things you you have memories of. They're the things that give you a lot of pleasure, but they're not really necessary. They add kind of spice to life or deepen your joy. But if you have that base, you have what you need. And then there are the corrosive desires and they have to go basically. And sometimes there are four things that are fine in moderation, but the feature of corrosive desires that's most, I guess, pronounced is that they're unlimited. So they're the sort of things about which someone might say, you can never have too much. So you can never have too much money. You can never have too much popularity, too many clicks, too many likes, too many podcast listeners. And so if you have that view of anything, then Epicurus thinks you've already made yourself unhappy because that's a desire that can never be satisfied because there's always more. And so if it's an unsatisfiable desire, then you'll always have pain of that dissatisfaction and you'll compare yourself to other people and you'll envy them and you'll feel better than other people when they don't have those things. And he thinks that's just a recipe for all sorts of negative attitudes. And so the most important thing for him is that desire should have limits, places where you can say that's enough. There's no more of enough. (laughs) You always have enough if you have enough. So, you know, money is fine as long as there's a limit. Friends are necessary. But the idea that you have to have the approval of everyone, that's just a recipe for disaster. So here we are in the middle of February, but there's plenty of year left. So if you've hit a snag on your goals so far or your New Year's resolutions, don't despair. Don't give up on your aspirations or your goals. Try a smarter way. Since 2014, I've personally been using the Tiny Habits Method. It was developed by Dr. BJ Fogg, who runs the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford. And I can tell you, it works. It's a three-step method, and I have a coaching program last four weeks, one-on-one, to get you on track. So don't give up in the year. Plenty of it left. Try a smarter way. Click on the link in the show notes, get the details of this short program to get you on track and moving toward your goals. So on the things we want, what questions should we ask ourselves when we really want something? Let's say, for example, dessert. (laughs) Dessert, right. Well, when it comes to dessert, Epicurus will say, ask yourself who you're eating it with. Because he was actually a bit of a foodie. So his reputation often comes down to us as a in the form of desires for luxuries. So epicurious.com is a huge repository of recipes, but Epicurus really focused on who you're eating with, right? So that's the question he would ask about, about dessert. But let's take something more, more where more is at stake, right? What should we ask ourselves when, say, we're offered a new job opportunity or... So in my field, there's often this question, believe it or not, I'm actually pretty competent at various sorts of administrative tasks. And so sometimes I think the administration is eyeing me to enter the administration. And so I think, well, what do I need to ask myself about that? And Epicurus says there are two questions you should ask, you know, what would happen if I got it? And what would happen if I didn't? And what would I compromise to get there? Right? So and would the payoff be worth it? And so for me, in entering administration, that would take two months out of my life that I would be giving in service to the university that I now have as freedom. And that would be a pretty big sacrifice for me because I value that autonomy and that freedom. Now, if I thought, 
wow, I'll accomplish something really amazing and this is my lifelong ambition, uh, then that would be great. But if I thought, oh, well, I just want more money that I don't really need, then I would be sort of sacrificing something very valuable like my freedom for money I don't need. And the allure of something like administration, right, is that you think, oh, well, I'll be respected or I'll I'll have more money. But if those things aren't in the grand scheme of things as important as these other values, then even though the extra money looks good, right, it looks awesome, then you have to think, no, actually, these other things are more important. So I grew up in the Boston area, so I appreciate a good rivalry, like the Red Sox and Yankees or Wake Forest and Duke. So what did the Stoics and Seneca in particular think of his philosophy? Yeah, so the Stoics, as I mentioned, they really started at the same time. Uh, Zeno of Kitium and Epicurus were head-to-head competitors. And in a lot of ways, they are similar, right? So they're both focused on resilience. They, they both challenge people to think about what they really need in happiness. So in many ways, they're similar. And this even comes out in Seneca. So the person you're mentioning, he's a later Roman Stoic. And he he's really good at this maneuver I often call the even Epicurus rhetorical maneuver. So sort of like, you know, it's true if even Epicurus thinks it. <laughs> so, so they really did. Seneca admired how Epicurus faced death, how Epicurus controlled his desires. And so the main places that they broke apart were really about friendship. So Epicurus thought we have needs and we need friends. And the Stoics thought essentially all we need is virtue and everything else is inconsequential. Fine to have, but you can do without it. And and Epicurus said, no, 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 we need friends. And, And to think we don't need friends is sort of Mars friendship itself, right? Can you imagine your friend coming to you and saying, I'd like to help you, but I don't really need anything from you, right? So this was a huge battle between him and Seneca. And Seneca also believed that the world was providentially ordered. And so when bad things happen to people, there's a good reason for it. And Epicurus was, he didn't think the universe was designed in any particular way for the good. And so bad things happen and you you learn to deal with them, but you don't have to say, oh, this is for a good. It just happened. And Epicurus gives you tools for dealing with that. But another big place where they disagreed, and I don't know if you knew this before you asked the question, is about retirement and about leisure. So Seneca really disliked Epicurus's encouragement to sort of avoid high power politics and leadership roles. And Epicurus was largely concerned with the fact that you give up sort of your core values often when you pursue those things and and you sacrifice the time that you could be enjoying life. And what's fascinating is that Seneca kind of came around to that view in the end. So he kept saying Epicurus is horrible until Seneca himself wanted to leave politics. And then he started saying, well, maybe Epicurus was right. So Seneca said, you know, the Stoics are the sort of people who put their battle helmets on over their gray hair, right? So they're, they're out there until they, you know, they teach until they drop dead in the classroom. And Seneca started to realize that Epicurus was right that there was a lot to be said for time spent, you know, doing more philosophy and with your friends. And so I think, and and Cicero also had this problem. So Seneca approved of a lot of things about Epicurus. And then some of the things he rejected, he came around to in the end. And for those listening, you can't see the video, but I 
too am wearing my helmet over my gray hair as we speak. <laughs> but that's an interesting, interesting battle of ideas between the two and how it turned out how we came to see those those views. You write in your book about social media, and I'm curious, if he were alive today, what would he make of social media, A, and B, what would his Instagram look like? <laughs> I don't know that. Well, actually, I, I, yeah, I don't think Epicurus would have an Instagram. But he does think, what's interesting about Epicurus is he thinks that whatever is consistent with maintaining your tranquility and whatever gives you joy and doesn't undercut it is good. So he would think that if social media connects you to your friends in a way that doesn't make you anxious and doesn't make you angry, then all the better. It just so happens that social media doesn't do that for most people, right? And it feeds these corrosive desires that Epicurus talks about, right? So this desire to have more likes and more followers and more people looking at you. And that just breeds anxiety and dissatisfaction. And so I think for the most part, social media just doesn't give people a sense of satisfaction. And so that's why he's going to think it's bad. Not that it's bad in and of itself. But it's true that so I, this summer, I actually did spend a lot of time with retired people or people at leisure because I got promoted and my partner and I went out to Wyoming and we kind of bumbled strangely into this job as campground hosts for the National Forest Service at this campground at 9,200 feet above sea level. It had no water, no electricity, and it was on this beautiful lake right next to a resort. So it cost $10 to camp where we were and $1,000 a night at the campground next door. And all of these people were at leisure, right? So some people were standard retirees who had RVs and they were retired couples. And some people were retired and living in vans and, you know, they were sort of living the retirement that was available to them. And some people were taking their retirement as they went, but really all of them were there to enjoy things, right? To have this, you know, they all had the same challenge. And so I think that this is one of those places where you see Epicureanism in action. It is sort of what is it that we need to do when we're at leisure? It's to connect to one another, to make memories, to find beauty. And that's the kind of thing that you can do, at least in in small, small chunks. I don't know if that answered your question. I think I went a little bit astray. <laughs> No, it does. Thank you. And we'll get back to action in a minute. But I was curious, also something else jumped out at me in your book, and that's his focus on memories and the value of those. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how memories play a part in his philosophy. Yeah. So Epicurus, right? So he thinks we're fundamentally animals. We approach the world through pleasure and pain, but we also have these mental capacities that allow us to remember the past and reflect on what's happening to us and anticipate the future. And one of the things that we can do that's kind of magical is replay our memories, right? And he thinks that this is just in itself a source of joy so that it's something you can do at any point. But he thinks they're especially useful in times of trial or hardship. So I think this happened a lot with people during the pandemic. I I had friends who were reaching out to like elementary school friends to find out how they were doing and you're talking about who knows what, like cafeteria food or... And so he thinks that what we get a lot of joy from is memories, and then we especially draw on them later in life. So I had a good friend who got shot with an arrow, unfortunately, at, at 22. And 
it was very painful and he spent a few weeks in the hospital. And one of the things he realized is that the only way to kind of entertain himself was to replay memories. And so he promised that he would, you know, prioritize that as he went through life. And and so Epicurus thinks, you know, if you're passing up opportunities to make even small memories, then you're not building that library of things, of resources you'll want to draw on. And so, yeah, the people at the campground, right? Their memories could be very simple, right? The sharing dinner with someone they'd never met, a hike, learning about bear spray. (laughs) So that's a pretty memorable thing. So yeah, memories are central to him and they're part of the sort of special sophistication of our brains that we can make them and rely on them. And we tend not to prioritize them. And he says, no, no, no. What you need to do is prioritize them. And it sounds like keep building them, keep adding to that library. Yes. So as a scholar and a professor, I'm curious, how do you apply an Epicurean philosophy and approach to your life? Yeah, it's interesting because when I wrote the book initially, I just kind of wanted to defend Epicurus because there are a lot of people who misunderstand him. And because of that, they sort of not slander him, but they just don't take him as seriously as they should. But I realized, you know, Epicurus himself says there's no point in doing the philosophy unless you're living it. And so as I wrote the book and as I got closer to finishing it, I thought, well, look, what is it like to live this? And so the last chapter of the book is sort of advice about how to incorporate Epicureanism into your life. But the main way that I do it, honestly, is that I've kind of slowed down when I have an opportunity to pursue something and asked whether I'm passing up something important, right? So if I'm, say, tired and a friend invites me out to dinner, maybe before I would say, oh, I'm too tired, or, oh, I'm going to stay in and do this inconsequential thing. And now I say, no, I'm going to spend time, I'm going to deepen this relationship, or I'm going to even just have a memory of a conversation. And so I do try really hard to just say, okay, well, what's important in this moment from the perspective of living my life? in a satisfactory way. And there is a sense in which the other thing that's really helped is this idea that, you know, we do only live once and we don't have to have more of everything. And so I do try to tell myself, I've had a good run. This is a good life, right? And if you can can kind of get yourself in the mindset of that, it really does feel good, right? So you're like, this is a good life. And Epicurus you know, he didn't think life was drudgery. He thought it was meant to be lived joyfully. And, and you have to get yourself in that headspace. So I kind of, I think magically sort of did. It didn't, I mean, obviously, again, I'm not a life coach. I'm not a guru. I have lots of problems myself. But I do think it's helped me just kind of prioritize small joys all the time. So I appreciate the last chapter of your book where you do give those practical ways to apply this. What's one you'd highlight for our listeners? Well, for Epicurus, he thought the most important thing was friendship, that it gives us the greatest security to face life's difficulties. Friends are there for us when we need them, and life does present us with times when we need friends. And they are really kind of the thing that makes up most of our memories. We don't have memories of solitary shopping ventures, but we might actually have a memory of a shopping venture with a friend, right? So to me, the most important thing is friends from Epicurus. And then also, again, he did get associated with the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so, yeah, don't delay the sources of gratitude for living. I would say 
seize it now with whatever time you have. And hopefully, if things go well, you'll have more of that when you retire. Great advice. And Emily Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with us today. Thanks. This was really fun. Now it's time for us to compare notes. What did you find important in this conversation? And I'll share my takeaways, three things you might want to consider adding to your to-do list in the days ahead. Number one, what is the good life? Emily Austin pointed out that this is indeed a timeless question. But the question for us is, what's the good life mean to you? What are those building blocks you want to have in place, not just when you get to retirement, but starting now? What makes a good life for you? Number two, are you finding joy in simple things? For those of you still working and many who are retired, you're saying, that sounds nice, but I'm just too busy. You don't understand what my schedule is like. I get it. But challenge yourself over the next few days and just see, experiment, what happens if you do take a moment to find joy in those simple things that keep coming our way, those moments that keep coming, giving us that opportunity. Find joy in simple things. And number three, audit your desires. Emily Austin laid out the model, three types of desires, necessary, extravagant, which are nicer versions to have of what's necessary, upgrade, if you will, and then corrosive desires, things that may be good or okay in moderation, but can be problematic. So when you think about the things you want, how do they break down into those three categories? Both what you want in your retirement life in the future and what's going on today. What can you do? about some of those nice to have desires, extravagant ones, especially the corrosive ones. How do you bring them back into the moderation zone? Thanks so much for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. The goal here is to help you retire smarter by taking a look at the non-financial side of life after you move on from the world of full-time work. You can find all of our episodes and browse them at our website, retirementwisdom.com. You'll find six episodes with a wide range of guests and a diversity of topics. It's a free retirement school. Thanks for listening.